Hi, this is Mary, and I'm going to be talking about the book of Esther today for the Encounter series. And when I found out that I was going to be talking on Esther a few weeks ago, I started reading it and read through it a number of times, just trying to look in the book for where is the encounter with God, because that's what I want to find and share. And uh, after a few tries, I walked away thinking, "Mm, it's not in there. I didn't really see it clearly, and it would be stretching to say that I saw it. So I was a bit frustrated, and I just put it away. And then um, a couple weeks later, I was just asking the Lord, like, what's the point in there anyway? What What are you trying to show? And so I want to share what I took away from that, but I want to share the summary of the story first. And it's just a summary, so bear with me. Um, But there was a king, I think, of Persia. It's a pretty big world power at the time. He's rather arrogant. I think he's pretty volatile. And he has a big feast for many months, and he wants his queen wife to come in so he can show her off because she's so beautiful. But she refuses, and as a result, he ends up getting rid of her. And then um, his aides give him this idea that you could gather up all the young maidens in the land and put them into kind of like this harem thing. And then you could try them each out. Whichever one you like the most, you could make her the queen. So he thinks that's a great idea, and that's what he does. And so Esther is one of those girls, and she, I think, must be around 12, maybe 13, And she lives there. She's actually a Jew who lives there as an exile with her cousin because her parents had died. So she lives there with an older cousin, and they're both Jewish exiles in the land. Um, So her cousin, Mordecai, tells her, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. Don't reveal your heritage because they weren't well-liked, so he wanted her protected. So she obeys that and doesn't, and she gets taken into this harem thing, and this guy, Haggai, Um, is in charge of taking care of her. And for 12 months, he tells her all the different things to do, like take these baths and put these oils on and gets her all ready and to to, um, go in and to meet the king. And the tradition was that when a woman, when it was her turn, when one of these young girls was ready to go in, they got to choose what they wanted to take in with them. But when it was Esther's turn to go, she didn't ask for anything at all. But it doesn't say she didn't take anything. It says what she did was exactly what Haggai told her to take, that she asked for nothing more. So in other words, she didn't make a request of her own. She just did what he told her to do. And um, so anyway, when it's her turn, she actually pleases the king the most, and she's made the queen. So now she's queen, and her cousin Mordecai, uh, eventually he overhears a plot to kill the king. So he tells her, Esther, you need to tell the king about this. And she does, and the king's life gets spared. And then there's also an advisor in the story. His name is Haman, and he's an advisor to the king. And he's very, very uh, proud and arrogant. And um, he convinces the, the, because the Jews were disliked, he, he decides that everyone should be bowing to him. But uh, Mordecai, the Jew, doesn't. And so he feels so slighted that he convinces the king to issue an order to kill all the Jews at a future date. Like there was a date planned, and on such and such a date, all Jews were going to be slaughtered. Um, So Mordecai then hears about this and tells Esther, 
that she needs to go tell the king about this, but she has not been called on by the king for over 30 days now. So she says to him, she can't just go in there. She can't just show up. That's against the rule. She'd actually be killed if she did. And in order to be seen, he'd have to uh, extend this scepter to allow her to come in, which she wasn't expecting and could be killed instead. So, um, Mordecai sends a message back to her, kind of reminding her that, well, you're a Jew too, and if you don't do this, you and all the Jews are going to be killed. And so she says she will do it, but asks the Jews to pray and fast first. And she admits that she's going to do this thing that might be risking her death. So they do this, I think, three-day prayer and fasting. And then the very next day, she goes in and the king allows her to speak to him. And she, he says, you know, what do you want? Anything up to half my kingdom. And she says, well, I just want you to come to, come to this banquet I've made for you and Haman. And um, so she uh, makes the banquet and they come. And uh, she doesn't say anything at all. And the king even asks her, what, what is it that you want? She says, well, why don't you come to another banquet? And I'm wondering there when I read that, like, why two banquets? And uh, honestly, my guess is she just she probably didn't really know. I think she wasn't sure how to go about what she was doing. And so she got that far and thought, well, I'll have another dinner and maybe we'll, maybe it will work. That's just my guess. But anyway, so she says, come to another banquet. And so they agree to, and in the meantime, Haman uh, is really furious because Mordecai will not bow to him. So he is convinced that he makes a gallows to hang Mordecai. And that night, the king can't sleep, so he asks his aides to bring the like a history book to read about the things that have happened in the kingdom. And in that, he's reminded that Mordecai actually saved his life, and the king realized no one honored him for that. So when he wakes up, Haman's out in the outer court waiting to talk to him to tell him he'd like to kill Mordecai. And the king says, hey, Haman, you know, what do you do with somebody who a king would want to honor? And Haman gives this great idea of put him on your horse and give him your clothes and parade him around and say, this is the one who the king wants to honor. And Haman thinks that the king wants to honor him. But it turns out that the king wants to honor or Mordecai. So he makes Haman do that for Mordecai. And I always think in there, like, so Mordecai, I wonder what his tone of voice was when he was parading. Um, I mean, Haman, when he was parading Mordecai around and he was having to say, this is what's done to a man the king wants to honor. Like, I can't imagine his tone of voice. But so he had to do that. So he must have been really bad. I mean, really mad. Anyway, so then he goes to the second banquet, and um, in that banquet, uh, Esther says, she tells, she exposes that someone is wanting to kill all of her people, and the king asks who, and she says, oh, it's Haman, and the king is furious, and he storms out and goes into the garden to probably collect his thoughts. And when he comes back in, Haman is sort of hanging on to Esther, begging, please, no. And the king thinks he's um, attacking Esther. And so now he um, he commands anyway that Haman would be killed on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. That happens. And then he makes Mordecai take his place. So now we have Mordecai as the aide advisor, number one, right-hand guy to the king, and Esther, the queen, 
Um, it still didn't take care of the problem, though, with the order for the Jews to be killed. So then Esther starts crying. She's crying before the king and her tears. And she's saying, what about the people? What about the people? Just take back the order. So again, she doesn't really have a plan. She's just in the moment. And she says, take back the order. And the king says, well, I can't do that because that doesn't work that way in the kingdom. And he basically tells Mordecai and Esther, just write something else and I'll seal that and okay that. And so Mordecai does. Mordecai writes up this new plan that would give rights to all the Jews to defend themselves. And um, that becomes the this next order that goes out. So as it goes on, a bunch of people in the palace are killed on that date by the Jews and Mordecai, or Haman's 10 son, sons are killed. And Mordecai is growing in power and people are afraid of him because he has the um, authority of the king and he's sending out these orders. And then um, in the end, uh, there was a, there was a, um, I'm not going to get into everything that happens after that, but basically they turn it into a festival day when they celebrate that, that their lives were spared and it turns into a, um, a regular Jewish festival. But there's a verse in there that I hear people use a lot, and it's to where where Esther is told by Mordecai, well, how do you know if you're um, if you weren't put here for such a time as this? And I've heard that in sermons, and and people talk about that, and and use it kind of like, um, you know, this is the the um, clue for us is we never know if we're positioned for such a time as this. And I always thought of that like. Um, the idea was look ahead for greatness. Like you never know the position that you're in, that your role might have this great life-saving capacity and, you know, be prepared for greatness, be on the lookout, find out what your calling is and your purpose and your role for this greatness, because you're here for this particular time. So I did usually think of it like that until, until now, when I read it and I was looking for the encounter and I couldn't find it. And I asked the Lord, like, what am I supposed to talk about then? And I was just sitting one day um, praying about it. And what dawned on me is she was just a girl. She, one, she was just a girl. And she was always in somebody else's care. And I really don't see where she had a plan in advance. She just gets told. She's told by her uncle, don't tell that you're a Jew. She's told what to take baths in. She's told what to wear. She's told what to take or not to take when she meets the king. And even the other women at that time, they all really had a mind of their own. They had a plan what was going to get them propelled to greatness. But Esther had none. She just did what was explained to her as the best thing to do um, by the people that were taking care of her. And then she's told by Mordecai to actually tell that she's a Jew. And then she's told to help stop the order. And then she breaks down and has tears. And, and then Mordecai writes the new order. So I really don't get the sense that she really had much of a clue about what was going on. She didn't seem to have a plan. She seemed to just kind of she didn't know what was coming on the other side. I don't think she had a plan. I really think she was just a girl. And when I thought of that, I felt actually a lot of relief. That was my encounter with the book of Esther. 
is that I actually felt a lot of relief when I think about that. It reminded me of the Mark verse, I think it's Mark 10, 4, 14, where Jesus is talking about the little children, and he says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he tells he tells everyone around, you have to have faith like these in order to get into the kingdom of God. You have to be like a little child. And when I was thinking on this at that particular time, and honestly, quite a bit off and on, um, I think that the last year in particular, uh, everybody has been living with increased anxieties coming from all different fronts and myself included, like so many things on the line, so many things in unrest. And I find myself often thinking like, what do I do? What's, what's greatness? What's the best impact I can have? What's the most, what would bring the most solution, the most change? What, you know, propel me into the greatness, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? And honestly, it's gotten me to the place where, in general, lately, I have felt worn out, burnt out, tired out, just flat out. And when I read this book and I saw it this way, where she was just a girl, and I think of the passage in Mark where Christ says, be like a little kid, it occurred to me that in the place of anxiety, and worry and fear. I can do that. And so what I started doing was anytime I noticed myself feeling anxiousness coming up over this impending thing or even things, personal things, I would immediately respond to that by saying to myself, little child, little child, little child. And I would try to rest in that place where I realize that that is actually the best place to be. I don't have to know the plan. I don't have to have the answers. I don't even have to know any more than the reality that I'm a little child to an amazing God who sees everything and holds everything in his hand, who provides, who takes care, who is faithful, who I can trust. And I settle my heart and my mind in that place. And I've been doing that for a couple weeks. And for the most part, not entirely, <laughs> but for the most part, when I realize I'm getting anxious or fearful about something, I just go right there, little child, little child, little child. And I put my heart in the place of rest. And I can say, uh, right now, I can't remember what the things were. And then there's the other times where I forget to do it and I get myself all worked up in a tizzy. So <laughs> so here's my prayer for me and for all of us. Father in heaven, you're good. You are father. We're children. We're children. We're little children. We don't have to understand. We don't have to know the answers. We don't even have to have a plan. We really can rest and trust that you're going to provide what we need when we need it, whether it's provision or direction, comfort, protection, deliverance, hope, supplies, whatever it is. I pray that you would allow our hearts to dramatically become like little children so that our faith would be such as theirs, 
so that we as your children would um, please you in our way, be as you desire for us to be, and usher in your kingdom. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.